0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.
1: Diuretic resistance is any time a patient is not achieving their diuresis goal with the current prescription
0: distal tubule normally is not very important in sodium reabsorption. The sodium chloride exchanger there, what happens is the site hypertrophies. There are more sodium chloride exchangers, so it goes from unimportant to quite important, but easily blocked with thiazide diuretics. Today we're going to discuss an article from 1991 titled, The Physiologic Basis of Diuretic Synergism, Its Role in Treating Diuretic Resistance, written by Dr. David Ellison. To help us dissect this article, we've invited Dr. Joel Topf, who is a clinical nephrologist in Detroit involved in house staff, medical student, and fellow education. Joel is the 2017 winner of the Robert G. Nairns Award for giving substantial and meritorious contributions to education and teaching. Joel's done a great number of things, including starting several blogs, creating Neph Madness, which is an online game in nephrology creating Neff Journal Club, which is very popular on Twitter, and often tweeting about nephrology issues with the handle kidneyboy with an underscore between kidney and boy. It is our pleasure to have Joel on this podcast. So the classic person that I see is someone who has both left and right heart failure who comes in with significant peripheral edema usually up past the knees and sometimes all the way up the thighs. The patient usually says that they've been taking furosemide for several years and recently it hasn't worked as well. On average they're on 80 milligrams of furosemide twice a day and this no longer causes a diuretic effect. So with this type of patient in mind, Joel, how do you think about diuretic resistance? What is your definition?
1: Well, diuretic resistance is any time patient is not achieving their diuresis goal with the current prescription. And we see this as a very common cause of admission, right? Patient has identified heart failure. They're on a stable dose of diuretics. But for whatever reason, what was working yesterday is not working today. And I have a mental checklist that I go through when I see this. The first thing I always ask, and it's the same things that the internal medicines residents ask, is there any dietary indiscretion, right? They get a certain amount of urinary sodium out with their diuretic prescription. And if they increase the amount of sodium in their diet dramatically, they go to a barbecue, they eat some salty food or what have you, all of a sudden they're in positive sodium balance. They're having more sodium in than sodium out, and they're going to get fluid overloaded. So that's the first thing I look at. And then one of the things that also can happen, especially with furosemide, which has no notoriously unreliable bioavailability. Remember, bioavailability is just the ratio between what is an equivalent oral dose to IV dose. And so oftentimes, and on average, ferrosamide has a bioavailability of about 50%, meaning that you'll have to double the IV dose when you convert to oral to get the equivalent response. But that's just the average response. If you actually take a look at studies, that bioavailability can range from 90% bioavailability to where you'd only need to increase the dose by 10% to 10% bioavailability, where you would have to increase the dose tenfold. And when we think of that kind of variability in bioavailability, the first thing that we think of is, well, that's probably different individuals. But that variability can happen within the same individual, that the same individual could at one point have a bioavailability of 50%, and that due to circumstances, increased gut edema for one of them that can fall to 10%. So what was formerly an effective dose is now not even close to an effective dose.
0: Are there any medications that you're particularly concerned about that they may have started taking and nobody told you? Right now, I can't think of any obvious
1: one. Do you have one in mind that you're thinking of?
0: Yeah, and it reminds me of a patient that I took care of in the 1980s who had heart failure and came in, and he'd gained five pounds, and he was a very, very adherent patient. I couldn't figure it out, and I was getting ready to try to adjust his diuretics. I'm getting ready to leave the room. This is the way it always happens in actual practice. And he tells me he has a bad shoulder, and the only reason he came in was his shoulder, not his heart failure. And I said, what are you taking for your shoulder? And he told me that he was taking an NSAID, which is why his furosemide wasn't working.
1: Right, and that's not so much a drug-drug interaction, but it's both of these drugs target the same organ, which is the kidney, and that when you block that prostaglandin production, you will increase sodium avidity in those patients, and so their ferrosmite, and for that matter, any of their diuretics will work less effectively. Yeah, that's a great one. NSAIDs will block the effectiveness of Okay, so let's say we take a
0: dietary history. They're not taking an NSAID. We bring them in the hospital. Two things can happen. We can give them IV furosemide and they make urine, or we can give them IV furosemide and they don't make urine. Let's talk about the first one quickly, and then the second one is where we're going to spend most of our time. So we give them IV furosemide. It works.
1: What do you do then? So it works is not the full story because you may see that Foley bag fill right by the bed and you're like, hey, we're getting good urine output. But to really know that it's working is you need to see the 24-hour urine output compared to the ends. And oftentimes, you'll give them an effective dose of Lasix. They'll get a good diuresis. But you come back the next day, and the total 24-hour fluid balance is not very satisfying. If they made some urine, maybe they made 1,200 over 24 hours, but they got 1,600 in or even only 1,400 in, and you're just not achieving that negative balance that you need to to get the patient recompensated in their heart failure.
0: Okay, so I see two types of patients. One is whom we give them IV furosemide, and they lose two pounds over the next 24 hours. They have a urine output of three to four liters. What do you do for that patient? And then we'll go back to the patient who has a modest or minimal urine output and try to figure out what to do with that patient.
1: Right. I mean, if you're getting three to four liters of urine in 24 hours, you've got good diuresis. I would continue that treatment plan until the patient is recompensated. They don't have dramatic lower extremity edema. They no longer have orthopnea. Patient's clinically doing well, walking around, and then transition them back to an oral diuretic regimen in preparation for going home.
0: Would you go back to furosemide or would you switch to something that was more bioavailable?
1: Right. So we have four different loop diuretics that we have to choose from. We have ethacrynic acid, furosemide, torsemide, and bimetamide. And the ethacrynic acid we reserve for people that have sulfa allergies. Put that one aside if they don't have a sulfa allergy. Furosemide is usually the standard that everybody uses, but it is problematic. It has two problems. One, we talked about the bioavailability, which is greatly variable. And the second one is it has a relatively short half-life. It has a half-life of about 90 minutes, so four half-slices is six hours. And so it just doesn't last long enough to use. Even BID dosing is not quite enough. And so a better choice is torsemide, which has the longest half-life of the three different drugs that are available. And so that's a good choice. And there's some soft data, essentially an unblinded trial from the late 90s, early 2000s, that showed decreased frequency of readmission for heart failure with torsemide compared to furosemide. Okay, so
0: we're going to switch them over. And what I do is I test them with an oral dose in the hospital before I discharge them just to make sure that it works. But now we have and the, the patient who does not have a very good output despite getting 100 milligrams of
1: iv furosemide just one other point dr centaur the equivalence dose is it's milligram for milligram torsemide is twice as effective so if you're using 40 milligrams twice a day of furosemide oral you'll switch them to 20 milligrams once a day of torsemide
0: beautiful okay so now we have what this article is really about and what this article is about is you give someone IV loop diuretic, and it really doesn't matter which IV loop diuretic because we don't have an absorption problem, and they're still not making significant urine. They're not losing weight. They're not decreasing their edema.
1: Yeah, so it's helpful to think about how these loop diuretics work. So visualize the nephron. You start with the glomerulus. The glomerulus filters all the salts and all the liquid in the blood is going through there. It prevents protein antibodies large molecules from getting filtered out, but otherwise you've got a filtrate that look very much like plasma. And then you have the proximal tubule that reabsorbs two-thirds of that volume, big dumb reabsorption in the proximal tubule, all the different electrolytes, lots of fluid is reabsorbed there. Then you have the loop of Henley, and that's where your loop diuretics are going to act. You have the descending limb of the loop of Henley, which is a passive aspect, and then you have the ascending limb of the loop of Henley divided into the thin and the thick. And the action here is in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. It is loaded with uh, transporter molecules called a sodium potassium two chloride transporter. And that is going to reabsorb sodium, potassium, and two chloride atoms with each cycle. And that is where you get most of your sodium reabsorption after the proximal tubule. About 25% of all the filtered sodiums to be reabsorbed there. And that's the target molecule for all your loop diuretics. These loop diuretics, they act on the tubular side, so they're going to be in the tubular fluid, in the stuff that's going to turn into urine, that's where the diuretic has to be to be active, and it actually fits into the chloride slot on that molecule and gums it up and prevents the reabsorption of sodium, potassium, and chloride. So when it's not working, there's a couple of different explanations. For one, you may not be getting enough of your loop diuretic into the tubular fluid. All the diuretics are highly protein-bound, 95 96% of them are protein-bound. And so they're not freely filtered with the glomerulus, they're actually secreted by the proximal tubule into the tubular fluid through organic anion transporters. And so they're gonna be transporting the diuretic in there and if you have renal failure, you're gonna have competition for those sites. So as your GFR falls, as you go from stage two to three to four to five, you're gonna get less and less secretion of the loop diuretics into the tubular fluid. And so you need to overcome that by increasing the dose. And so that's the first error, the most common error that I see is people using an inadequate dose of loop diuretics, especially if a patient's got some degree of chronic kidney disease or acute kidney injury. You just need to ramp up the dose. And what I like as a good kind of starting point is creatinine times 20 equals your furosemide dose. Somebody's got got a creatinine of three, 60 milligrams is not a bad place to start. Creatinine of three and a half, 70 milligrams. Four, 80 milligrams. I don't usually go higher than 80 milligrams as a starting dose, though you can certainly go higher, but I'd like to at least see what kind of response they get with 80 milligrams before I go further than that. Is that similar to what you
0: do? Yeah. It seems that, in general, when someone like this comes in, they get 100 milligrams of furosemide no matter what, and then if they haven't responded to 100 milligrams of furosemide, we start scratching our heads and going back to the physiology of, we're assuming the furosemide got into the tubule, it's in the loop, we assume it's working, and now they're still not making urine, and that's why this article was so exciting to me because it was the first time that I thought I understood why.
1: Yeah, and this is exactly what you talked about in your initial case. And the key there was that the patient had been on stable doses of loop diuretics for a long time, which we see all the time in heart failure. And when that happens, you're blocking the reabsorption of sodium in the loop of Henle, but there are two other nephron segments still to come, right? You have the distal convoluted tubule with your thiazide-sensitive sodium chloride transporter, and you have your medullary collecting duct with your epithelial sodium channel. And both of those areas can increase sodium reabsorption, but especially the thiazide-sensitive sodium chloride transporter, we see this on biopsies, we see this in the histology, that if a patient has been on loop diuretics, this area of the kidney gets ramped up since it's being bathed with all this excess sodium, it hypertrophies and can really reabsorb excessive amounts of sodium and decrease the effectiveness of that dose of Lasix that you just gave them. Even if you gave them an appropriate, you bumped up the dose, and you're really shutting down that loop of Henle, the distal convoluted tubule where the sodium chloride co-transporters are can completely erase the effectiveness of that loop diuretic and reabsorb that excess sodium and prevent you from getting effective diuresis. And that's why you experience the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, now the noughts, right? I mean, it still works today. It's a great solution. If you then block that sodium chloride co-transporter with a thiazide or thiazide-like diuretic, now you've short-circuited two different consecutive segments of the nephron and can really increase urinary sodium excretion.
0: Now, I often tell the house staff this is why they had to take physics to go to medical school so they'd understand the difference between parallel and serial resistors. <laughs>
1: right this is a serial resistor this is a exactly serial right. resistor problem
0: yeah so to put into words once again the distal tubule normally is not very important in sodium reabsorption the sodium chloride exchanger there what happens is the site hypertrophies there are more sodium chloride exchangers so it goes from unimportant to quite important but easily blocked with thiazide diuretics Right.
1: It's a sodium chloride co-transporter, not an exchanger. Okay. Co-transporter. Okay. Because right, they're both moving in the same direction. That's why it's uh, electroneutral, because you've got a cation and a anion Great. moving in the same direction.
0: Great. So, we know that works. Now, in practice, the problem that I see, and that was written about as early as 1983 when they did not know exactly how this worked, but they knew that when you used furosemide and, for example, metolazone together, there were a lot of side effects. So perhaps the physiology will inform us of what the dangers are and how we need to be careful when we do this combination.
1: Right. Every house staff has memorized all the electrolyte abnormalities that you see with furosemide, and all of these just happen much quicker. You're going to see a lot of hypokalemia. You can see a lot of metabolic alkalosis. The one that's interesting is the loop diuretic should increase urinary calcium and the thiazide diuretic should decrease urinary calcium. So those will probably neutralize each other and you probably won't get calcium abnormalities. I certainly haven't seen a lot of them. But the hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and metabolic alkalosis, not only are they all together, but they all reinforce each other, right? Once you get hypomagnesemia, you're going to have a hard time repleting that potassium until you get that magnesium corrected. Once you have metabolic alkalosis, that's going to accelerate your potassium losses and you really need to correct. The metabolic alkalosis and so all three of these are generated by these diuretics and include and throw in hypotension too right they can get pretty profound hypotension and prerenal azotemia if you are increasing your diuresis so you're getting rid of more sodium than you can mobilize from the subcutaneous tissues from all that edema you can get a situation where you'll have decreased effective circulating volume and you can induce hypotension and renal failure so you so- need to titrate this dose so you don't get too much too quick diuresis
0: so thing about the physiology, one of the things that I tell my house staff is let's give one dose. I like metolazone because it has a long duration of action, and that's what I used in the 70s. Some people prefer to use a different thiazide diuretic, and as best I can tell, it doesn't matter what thiazide diuretic you use. Many people, because they're using IV, will use chlorothiazide, although that is pretty expensive. But I say let's give one dose. See what the response is, and see if there's still resistance afterwards, because I'm really worried about over-diuresing and hypokalemia. Now, fortunately, most of my patients are on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, so I seem to see a lot less hypokalemia than I did in the '70s. So, do you like that idea of absolutely, yeah, not and doing this for a long time if you can help it? Let me
1: ask you this: Are you ever discharging these patients on a thiazide and loop diuretic, like once you've recognized this problem?
0: Almost never, and then I would only do it if I had a really intelligent patient. I remember a patient that I had, this lovely 85-year-old lady who had an aortic insufficiency and an EF of like 11%, and she had the best two daughters you've ever seen. They were both nurses. They weighed her religiously every day, and she was on sliding scale metolazone. She ended up taking it about once every other week. So that once she'd start to retain, they'd give her one dose of metolazone in addition to her furosemide, and she'd get down to her regular weight. And we controlled it by controlling her weight and not letting her weight get too low, which I personally think is very, very important when you're using diuretics and heart failure is to give just enough but not too much.
1: Yeah, I have a number of patients where they really have resistant edema, where they can't get by with just a loop diuretic. And I do the same thing. I almost never end up with daily metolazone, but it's a once, twice, or three times a week metolazone. And I do deputize the patients to be able to titrate that. They get pretty good after being admitted a few times at recognizing what's too much when they're starting to get into trouble. And if they have something that they can reach for, they really appreciate that. So
0: I think following weights and following symptoms, making sure they don't take too much diuretic when they no longer have significant edema or orthopnea, regardless of whether it's nephrotic syndrome or heart failure or some combination, I think is a good idea. So any other thoughts on the physiology? Because as I told you earlier, this article really excited me because now I understood what I was doing. It really informs the side effects uh, it's sort of a Goldilocks problem. We don't want it to be over we don't want it under-diurese, we want it diarrhea just right.
1: Yeah, when I was reading the article, one of the other things that stuck out to me that I was concerned about is they really emphasized using uh, 24-hour urine sodiums to try to help gauge how well your diuresis is working and how well their diet, whether they may be having dietary indiscretion. And that, I was a bit uncomfortable with that. I don't think that's a great strategy, especially in our hospitalized patients. The urinary sodium is not a bad way of looking at dietary sodium in stable outpatients. But once you have a patient that's come into the hospital and you're starting to throw diuretics at them, I am very skeptical that you can get any meaningful information at that point. I was not a fan of that part of the article. But.
0: I think in 1991, we collected a lot more 24-hour urines than we do in
1: 2018. Yeah, I bet we did. But the point being is that if you're not in sodium balance, it becomes much more difficult to interpret that information. And whether that elevated urine sodium is due to the diuretics or due to the excess dietary intake is very difficult to determine, right? How do you know?
0: Right. So let's go ahead and summarize what, from this discussion and from this article, your take-home points for someone who is edematous and is not responding to their oral loop diuretics.
1: Go back over the... Let's walk through it. The first key thing is let's get away from the question of bioavailability and go right to IV diuretics. If they're in the hospital, get them on IV diuretics. That's going to eliminate one source of variability. And just like you said, then it doesn't matter which type of loop diuretic you're on, they're all about equal. And then the next thing you want to do is you want to take a look at the pattern, right? If they get a good response to the loop diuretic, but you're not getting an adequate 24 hour diuresis, That's a frequency problem, and you need to turn up how often you're giving the drug. Lasix has got a half-life of about an hour and a half, so you can use it three, four times a day. Usually, the nurses start getting annoyed once you're over three times a day. Just switch them to a Lasix drip, and that will help you maintain good, steady diuresis and be able to get you into a negative balance. No reason to use a Lasix drip right off the bat. That was actually tested in a randomized controlled trial recently, no advantage to Lasix drips compared to bolus dosing right off the bat. But that same study was a two by two factorial design They did look at dosing, and the proper dose was not just the same. a lot of times people say, just convert them to their oral dose to the IV dose. So if they were on 40 milligrams BID, switch them to 40 milligrams IV. That was not as good as increasing the dose by two and a half fold, which was the recommendation of that study. They got risker diuresis with no increase in side effects. Then if you're not getting good effective diuresis, regardless of dose, once you have a proper dose, then the next step is to use the idea of a serial blockade and you add a thiazide-type diuretic. Both of us like metolazone, but I agree with you. You can use a chlorthalidone if you want, or you could use a hydrodiarrheal if you needed to, to block the distal convoluted tubule to shut down distal sodium reabsorption that may short-circuit the loop diuretic that you're using. And that when you do this, beware, you can get rapid drops in blood pressure, you can get hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia, and pretty severe metabolic alkalosis. So that
0: is wonderful. Hopefully everyone listening now understands much better the physiology of diuretic resistance, understands some principles of how to address it. Joel, as usual, your explanations are wonderful, and I'm so glad you could join us on this podcast to bring some clarity of what diuretic resistance is, how to address it, and what's the physiology behind it. Thanks
1: very much. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: It's time for Bob's Pearls. This conversation focused on different reasons that patients come in not responding to their oral loop diuretics. We discussed the problems of absorption, especially of furosemide. We discussed dietary indiscretions and the use of sodium retaining medications such as NSAIDs. And then we finally discussed the problem of diuretic resistance where the sodium chloride cotransporter hypertrophies secondary to constant bombardment from loop diuretics. What I hope everyone learned from this conversation is an approach to the patient who says their furosemide is not working. Thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast.
1: For more episodes
0: of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.